You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employer's respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways, shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. Conair is spreading love and celebrating women, not just on International Women's Day, but every day with Conair Girl Bomb. Girl Bomb is their new line of powerful hair removal tools made just for us. Yeah. Whether it's the silky smooth skin or the empowering confidence boost you get, Conair Girl Bomb is here to amp up those positive vibes with some self care. So, to all the beautiful women out there, keep shining, keep being you. And treat yourself to some Conair Girl Bomb magic. You deserve it. Available at Walgreens. Hi, everyone. Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress, where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. I am beyond excited for all of you to hear today's episode. Our guest is Chef Kwame Onwachi, who was recently named the Rising Star Chef of the Year by the James Beard Foundation. Guys, that's like the Oscars for food. This is a huge deal. Kwame has a fascinating story, which he writes about in his memoir, Notes from a Young Black Chef. His restaurant, Kith and Kin, is a must if you're in the D.C. area. And I am really, really hoping he opens up something soon here in L.A. because, well, because his food is delicious. We talk about everything from his childhood in the Bronx and in Nigeria to the lack of diversity in fine dining to some of the biggest lessons he's learned so far. Enjoy. I really wish we could tell all the listeners what you're here for, but it's a secret. I know, we can't. We can't talk about it yet. Are we on right now? Yeah, but it's going to be really good. But before we get into what you're doing now, mm-hmm. I I like to take things back. Take it back. Yeah, I want start at the beginning. I want to start at the beginning, but I guess it before all I started, but it all it all started on a cold <laughs> night in New York. No, I, I should probably tell people how you and I yeah, first came to meet? know each tell other. Them. So. I was back in April of 2019 Mm -hmm. and Questlove was hosting a food salon in New York. Mm -hmm. And like any of you who follow him on Instagram, you know that Amir's food salons are legendary. They don't. And this one was big because it was to kick off this big conference that was happening. And how, how, I mean, God, how many people did you cook for? Like 80 people, 100 people? 100 people, a little over 100 people. And I got really lucky because I was playing musical tables. (laughs) And when the entrees came out, I was right by the kitchen. Oh, yeah. So you got it hot. You got it like the first plates. Well, also, you came to say hi. Mm. And we met at that table that I was sitting at. And you made, I mean, I say me because it felt 
really personally amazing, but really all of us. You made all of us the best rice I've ever had. And I was like, excuse me, is there any more of this? And that that was our first conversation. I was like, please, Sam, I have some more. Yeah. I think you ate like three helpings. I, I ate three bowls of rice yeah. all by myself. At like that one table. And then you like moved around. I mean, I may have cleaned up other people's places. It's like, all I'm good. Fine. I don't it's like to waste good. food. It was good rice and peas, you know, traditional Jamaican rice and peas. It was. But I just made my own like toasted coconut milk and like <gasps> a ginger and garlic puree in there mm-hmm. as well. It's mm-hmm. it pretty, pretty special. It was really It was special. a good night. There was a lot of cool people in that room yeah. that were like, we were all like vibing. Yeah. It was a yeah. vibey night. The people at the, wherever we were at that place, definitely wanted us to leave by the end of the night. They were like, we really need to close. Yeah. Please get out. Yeah. But it was so much fun. And yeah, that rice. That was fun. It was fun. And then the event the next day was was cool too. Yeah, it was neat, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, a lot of cool speakers, a lot of good conversations. But, you know, I met you as this all-star chef crushing appreciate it. it appreciate it and i'm curious like where this all began the start of your story you know but but as you're gonna take us back because i always like to ask people what kind of kid were you like w- were you that's a that's a loaded question oh, it's a loaded question <laughs> okay well i'll give you a softer question first and then you can tell me because you, your childhood i'm particularly interested in as it relates to food do you have a first memory about food? Is it is it a smell? Is it a dish? It's uh it's a couple dishes actually. Okay. So I have two early early food memories. One is the scent of a goosey stew, which is like a Nigerian dish. It's like a na- the national dish of Nigeria next to jollof rice. So it's mm-hmm. uh, uh shrimp powder, smoked shrimp powder cooked with like onions and garlic and ginger mm. and palm oil, and then you add uh bitter you add melon seeds so they take melon seeds and they dry them out and they crush them into a powder and you add that then you add whatever stock you're going to be using whether it's like chicken stock if you're going to cook chicken Mm -hmm. so on and so forth um and then you finish it with uh bitter leaves or spinach leaves and you serve it with pounded yam so that smell is like very very distinctive so that was my earliest like scent and then my first food memory is curried goat in mm. dalpuri roti, like a Trinidadian dish. Mm. Yeah, I mean, my my family has always been involved with food. Mm. You know, even back to my grandmother and great-grandmother, they all had restaurants. And they didn't have wow. fancy restaurants, but they lived in Beaumont, Texas in like the 60s. So, you know, Jim Crow was in full swing, wow. you know, so they couldn't like go out and eat at restaurants. So a lot of mm-hmm. black people had juke joints in the back of their homes or mm. fish fries or little mm-hmm. bars so they can, you know, eat or enjoy themselves without being harassed. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my grandmother had a barbecue place. My great-grandmother had a fish fry joint. So it's always been in my family. Mm-hmm. My mother cooked. So she had a catering company that she operated from the house. Probably very illegally, me and my sister became her first two employees. <laughs> I was five and my sister was 10. Um, and we had to help with everything from yeah. peeling shrimp to stirring roux. And my sister would go off and help with the events. And I was stuck at home with the babysitter and a bunch of ingredients. And that's how I really got into cooking and just like experimenting. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I wish I'd started learning to make anything when I was five. Because it's, that's in you. Yeah. How did you enjoy it then? Like as a kid, did you get really curious about it? I did. I did. I mean, it was more of a chore, but it was still like time well spent. 
with mm. my family. It wasn't like mm-hmm. doing a tedious task alone. Yeah, you weren't you know? like washing windows. No, like we were all in the kitchen together laughing, joking. So yeah. like it's it's another early memory that I have for me. So I was a kid that was like into things. I was always like into doing things with my hands, you know. I never really enjoyed school, but I was in the talented and gifted program, but I didn't like doing homework or tests or things like that. So mm. I definitely started veering off on the wrong path at an early age. So growing up in the Bronx is easy to do that, especially you're left to your own laurels a lot growing up in New York City. Like you start mm. taking the train at a young age, you know, to yeah. get to school. So my mom saw that and she wanted to nip that in the bud. So she sent me, she told me I was going to Nigeria for two weeks for a vacation to visit my grandfather that lived there in a small village in uh, in Nigeria, in Ibuzo. It's like three hours into the country um, from Lagos. And I remember it was like September. That's when like school starts in the city in New York. And I called her we, and we had to drive to a call center. Like I couldn't just like get on the phone. Like I had to drive an hour away, wait in line. Wow. And I was like, when am I coming back home? And she was like, you're not, not until you learn respect. And damn, yeah, my heart dropped. Whoa, because the Harry Potter movie was just about to come out. You know, there were so many things that I was gonna miss out on. Okay, and and so, how but old were you? I was 10. You were 10? Yeah. So and how long had you been there when I, you said, When am I coming home? Two months. Okay, so it was sort of like summer break, and then you were like, exactly. Something's going on. I was like, What's what's up? So, it ended up being two years until I came back. Whoa. And so, it was a culture shock, you know, like we didn't have electricity. There was no running water. There was no hot water. We washed, there was no washing machines. Like if you waited to do your laundry, like you, you were, you're fucked. Like it was a lot of clothes that you had to wash by hand, you know? And so where, like, can you paint a picture of where you were living? Is this a, is this a city? Is this a town? Is so it was a village, a village? the village okay. of Ibuzo. You know, my grandfather was a chief of the village called Obi. Wow. So we had a nicer house than most, but it was still very modest compared to, you know, being in America. Mm-hmm. And he had two wives because he was the chief of the village. So he had like clout and that's like tradition over there. And it was, uh, I had two other cousins that were there from America, just on a cultural retreat, essentially, that their parents sent mm-hmm. them on. And, you know, I went to school out there. Very, very different than, you know, America. If you didn't do your homework in America, you just get detention. If you don't Mm -hmm. do your homework there, you have to like carry a cinder block across a soccer field six times. So you learn very quickly to do the right thing. Wow. So yeah, it was, it was intense. You know, we raised our own livestock, you know, we cultivated our own produce. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one of the things that gave me a lot of respect for ingredients in the kitchen Mm -hmm. is having that, you know, that background. Yeah. And and I would imagine for where things really come from yeah. and the energy that's put into them. Exactly. We so often forget about the fact that our food has been grown and watered and nurtured and picked and boxed and shipped. Like the, the number of hands and the amount of people who've had to be a part of it. Yeah. And when you cultivate your own livestock, produce, when you're really raising the food that you're then eating, mm-hmm. that's a that's a whole nother, I'd imagine, level of kind of respect and intimacy yeah, with what you connection eat. to what, yeah. Intimacy is a great word for that. It's mm-hmm. like, I mean, I remember when 
So I used to name all the chickens because they were like my friends, you know. Well, but doesn't that make and it so hard? It, yeah, but I, I couldn't help it, right? I didn't right. have a, like I didn't have video games or anything, so yeah. I had to use my imagination. And I remember my grandfather was like, "We have to kill one of the chickens. You can choose which one you want." So I had to make a decision all of amongst all of my friends. And mm. when I when we killed it, he made me hold its head up and was like, you know, don't look at it in the eye. You know, this will teach you to respect, you know, the things that you eat, that they actually come from somewhere. Mm. You know, they're not just bought in a cellophane package, you know. Mm -hmm. Some of them have names and mm -hmm. it's it's real. So, yeah. yeah, I think, I mean, I I would not be here right now if it wasn't for that. I don't think I came back any better in the moment. I came back as an American teenager. So I quickly got back into the things that sent me out there. But it wasn't until I got older that I really appreciated the things that I went through and the things that I have here and why you need to take matters into your own hands sometimes because there's so many opportunities here. You just need to do them. Right. Oh, yeah. I, well, I want to talk to you about getting over that sort of paralyzation that comes with, I think, fear of doing what you want. Mm -hmm. But first, I'm very curious... How did your mom know when you had, to her point, learned respect and you were ready to come home? I think half of it, she missed me. It was like I was gone <laughs> for a long period of time. Yeah. And it was just time. You know, I think my mm -hmm. grandparents were very aware and were like, okay, it's time for him to go home. Like, there's nothing else that we can do here at mm -hmm. this point. You know, he's learned how to survive. And I think at that point, it was it was just ready to come. It was, it was time to come home. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you, you learn a whole other set of survival skills. To your point, you learn to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. You learn to respect your teachers, your food, your family, your mm -hmm. space, your clothing, you know, whatever whatever it is that you're responsible yeah, for. Yeah, exactly. I think learning true responsibility, that's a whole other thing. Yeah. You got to see really early. Yeah. So what happens at 12 when you come back to the Bronx? At 12, I come back to the Bronx. You know, I turn 13 and I'm I'm back in it. I'm back into doing the things that got me sent out there, honestly, you know. Because so now I'm that... more independent. Right. You know, I quickly get a job and I'm like fending for myself at that point. So when you say you got back into the things that got you sent out there, what does that then What's that relationship like with your mom? What is, you is, know, is so, there friction or are you just so out because you have a job at this point? There's friction, but also a little bit, I think more, you know, looking at it outside, looking in more of an mm -hmm. understanding like, okay, now you're in this awkward phase of your life. You're supposed to be doing these, not to this extent, but you're supposed to be exploring and finding yourself at this stage. Not when you're 10. Sure. You know, so we still had a good relationship. You know, I was definitely going back down that path, which I continued into college, you know, which got me kicked out of college. Would you would you share what that is or would you prefer to leave it a little vague? No, it's fine. I mean, okay. I was into I, I was in a gang when I was younger, when I came back. What's the social pressure in the neighborhood that creates the pathway to that? Kind of like a sense of togetherness, mm. you know. Growing up in the South Bronx, it's like you're you're fighting everywhere you go. Like mm -hmm. you're fighting the police, you know, not physically, but like fighting to like have them treat you at like a person. Mm -hmm. You know, you're doing that at school, you know, where most of the teachers see you as a threat mm -hmm. and a problem than just like a kid. 
you know, you're actually fighting people in different territories. So like that sense of togetherness where you can go someplace and Mm -hmm. everyone has your back metaphorically Mm -hmm. or physically is refreshing, Mm -hmm. especially to a lot of people that don't have, you know, positive role models or influences. Of course. So for me, I remember the way that I got into it was my mom had moved to Louisiana like my last year of high school. And so I was pretty much on my own. I live with my stepfather, but I didn't really respect him as a as a father figure, really. So I was just doing my own thing. You know, I started selling drugs. I got into a gang and it, it happened kind of by accident. But mm-hmm. once you're in it, you're just in it. You know, I had got into a fight. So I was going to Catholic school and then I got kicked out of Catholic school my senior year, just coincidentally when my mom moved away as well. And I wasn't I, I was like a class clown and I would like pull pranks on teachers mm-hmm. and it was just got to a point where they had enough. So I started going to a public school down the street from where I lived and uh, I got into a fight with a kid. There was a kid there that was from our block that didn't help me and I got jumped at the end and he was standing there. So then when we all came back, it was like, it had been written. I had to fight him or else they were going to beat him up. So then I fought him. And then after that, they initiated me into the game because I, I won the fight, essentially. Mm-hmm. It's very complicated. But there are rules to, like, being in that environment. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's a pecking order. Yeah. If you're mm-hmm. going to, if you're, you know, it's inter- if you can't witness something like that without helping your friend. And they take that, right. like, extremely seriously, right. you know, where I'm from. So after that, then I was essentially initiated into this. I didn't ask to be, but... That was that. Right. I talk about it in the book in more detail. But yeah, so that's how I got into that. And it's kind of like, it It just snowballed after that. I was just like a product of my environment. Like mm-hmm. then I started, even though I was working at McDonald's, I was still selling drugs. And mm-hmm. I carried that on with me to high school, to college. Because when I went there, I didn't really have a dime to my name. So that was a way that I knew I could make money and help pay off my tuition. Right. So... Student loans, man. Yeah. So crazy. It's interesting to me because one of the things that I think gets missed when we talk about the elements that go into the sort of social pressure cooker that create dangerous or toxic situations for people, like whether you're thinking about abusive relationships for a lot of women or you're thinking about like gang violence, is that there is within this space that when the world looks at it from the outside in and goes, that's bad. And those, those kids must be bad kids. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's, there's a bit of respite there. Yeah. And I appreciate the way that you highlight the reality that in an environment that wasn't safe, you have safety in numbers, you have safety Mm -hmm. in this community. And I think the, the complication of, when you feel safe somewhere, but that somewhere is also made of danger or a requirement, like you said, to fight or to defend or, you know, whatever. It it becomes really confusing. And I don't know. I just, I, I, I think about how hard that must be as a kid. Mm-hmm. It's, to, t- it's extremely difficult. Yeah, you like know, to figure out what you're supposed to do. How to navigate those waters mm-hmm. without having any guidance. Yeah. You know, but instinct. 
I remember when I first, so the reason why I even like kind of got into all of that was like, he was uh, my best friend. His name was Jaquan. And we, he got off like a stop ahead of me on the train. And one day I was like, oh, let's, let me go to your house. And he lived in the projects and I'd never even been to the projects before. I lived around the corner from them, but you don't really veer into them unless you know somebody there. And I remember being so scared walking through there, like not, I didn't know anyone. I remember I was looking at some guy cause he just had like a scar on his face and tattoos. I thought he was interesting. And like, he cursed me out for looking at him in his eyes. And luckily Jaquan was there. So he was like, he's cool. He's cool. And I remember three years after that, I was in a, I was in a gang, like in the gang there. I was able to sell drugs there without any repercussions. And mm. I felt like I had made it in this, in a sense, like mm. I was, I felt more safe at that moment, even though I was in more extreme danger, but I didn't really put two and two together, you yeah, know? Because you exist in the vessel that you're yeah. contained by. And so you went from being a kid who was getting cursed out and threatened by someone to being a boy who wasn't being threatened by anyone. And you think like, oh, I'm doing something right. Exactly. Yeah. And it's interesting because there's such a, I think, a failure of analysis of the lack of options in the system for any person who is being denied access. Mm -hmm. And like you talk about your teachers looking at you as a threat instead of as a child to like help foster growth in. Mm -hmm. And I, I heard the most inspiring thing back in April, actually, not long after I saw you. My friend Sarah Elizabeth Lewis is a professor at Harvard, and mm -hmm. she held this convening called Vision and Justice. And one of the speakers there talked about how they turned around the extreme violence program in this school that he works at that like is one of those places that is sort of forgotten mm -hmm. and where people are like, that's a, you know, that horrible term, that's a lost cause. Yeah. And they said, we fired all of our security guards and hired arts teachers and we brought Didn't art. change it all? Everything. Yeah. They were like, we brought art and drama into our school and every kid is required to take those classes mm -hmm. and test scores are up, yeah, violence they have is an down. outlet for creativity. Yes. Yeah. And that's like, all you need sometimes, you know? Yeah. And, and we, we treat so many kids we treat so many people like they're in a prison system like they've done something bad mm -hmm. and then we go like weird that the this community is you know experiencing violence and it's like well what what are we doing to support yeah. people children especially who are finding themselves yeah that's really yeah i don't know i'm just i'm struck it's tough by it a lot it's tough you know and i i even think back you know like it's really hard, but like what more I could have done in that situation? Because like here I am, totally changed, turned my life around. And I think because I had positive role models, like my mother, you know, my father. But I think back to like, what could I have done differently in that moment? You know, because like my close friend, Jaquan, he's not here anymore. Mm -hmm. And he I'm kept sorry. doing that. He he stayed in that lifestyle. And, you know, we both got kicked out of school at the same time. We were both selling drugs together. But we both were together for so long in mm -hmm. our life that he could have easily, he could easily be where I'm at right now, you know, if, mm -hmm. I don't know, I would have pushed harder or something like that. So, like, I think taking away, like, there's always something that can be done, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's a, a gentle nudge or a, or an understanding of someone yeah, or just, or just empathy. It's hard, though, especially as a kid 
to know how to love people in ways that will be transformative for them. Because mm -hmm. we learn that as we age, yeah. generally the hard way. Like we learn what relationships we want to be in by being in bad ones. Mm -hmm. We learn how to be better humans by the ways that we screw up. Yeah. And I think, I think it's such a beautiful sign. Like anytime I'm talking to a person I really respect who says like, yeah, in hindsight, I think about... I would have done this differently or that differently. I'm like, oh, it's so cool to hear people talk about the ways that they that they grow and they consider yeah. things. But also I think about kids and I'm just like, how does any kid know to be something they can't see? How does any kid mm -hmm. know what they don't know? Because yeah. even now as an adult, I have to check myself and be like, well, I don't know what I don't know. So sometimes I need to ask questions and that can be kind of embarrassing, but mm -hmm. I'm an adult. So I'm like not embarrassed to admit that I don't know something, don't know something. Yeah. but oh my god as a 16 year old I was like I know I, I know everything. yeah I know <laughs> you know there's such there's such a thing where like you're so afraid in your little teenage body that you don't want to yeah, admit you that you're vulnerable. afraid you know most adults still don't want to be vulnerable you know I mean I have a good therapist <laughs> I'm all about vulnerability but I've, yeah. I've, I've literally paid the price for it yeah it's not cheap I, I want to, I'm going to ask you some questions I know from the book, but like, mm -hmm. you know, because not everyone is listening has read it yet, mm -hmm. but you're all going to, you're going to go online, you're going to order this book <laughs> immediately because it's beautiful. Thank you. Yep. Thank you. Shameless but, plug. You know, shameless plug, but I'm doing it. So it's really not. <laughs> it's like, for me, it's a, it's a really joyful plug. Yes. But so you're in the Bronx and then where do you go to college and how does all this keep Going. So I go to Bridgeport, University of Bridgeport in Connecticut, and you know, I start selling drugs. I start selling everything. I'm selling like alcohol in my room, like these little nutcrackers, which is like a Bronx cocktail um, that they serve on the streets in the summertime. I, I bring that up to Bridgeport, start selling that. Then I start selling weed. Then I start selling ecstasy. And I'm kind of like just now I'm not even like going to class anymore. I'm just making my life change because I never had this, that amount of money where I didn't have to worry about my next meal or anything. So mm. I'm very comfortable. I'm, you know, reckless as well. And I remember I got caught like smoking weed on like the steps of school and they made us take like a drug test. I obviously failed. I admitted to it. So they let me stay in school, but I had to move off campus and it just got worse. I mean, now I, I didn't have to like walk past security guards or RAs or anything. I'm just like doing whatever I want to do. And I remember just waking up in like a drunk, hungover, drug stupor. My house full of people I don't even know, like sleeping everywhere. Mm. And Obama is walking across the stage. And... I voted for him, but I was like, there's no way he's going to be a black president. Like, there's no way. It's only been like, at that point, like 35 years since Jim Crow was like eliminated in all areas, you know, whether it was sports or, you know, public access or mm -hmm. things like that. And eliminated on paper, but. On paper. Yeah, on paper at, at that. So like, yeah. I was like, there's no way it's not going to happen. And when I saw him do that, I was like, I have not even realized my true potential if this black man is the president of the United States right now wow. and did not think about anything, but had his mindset on something. He had a dream, he had a goal, he made it happen. It wasn't given to him, he worked for it. And this is what I'm doing with my life right now. Like I need to stop before this gets even more serious than it is. And I don't know, I don't know what it was, but I, I remember flushing all of my drugs down the toilet, mm -hmm. giving away what I couldn't flush 
the last bit of money I had, I just bought a one-way ticket to Louisiana and moved back home with my mom and started cooking because it was the only thing I knew how to do. Wow. That kind of like a revelatory lightning rod moment. Yeah. You hear people who've done exceptional things talk about that. Just go like there was with this thing. Yeah. And the light switch flipped. And once it's on, mm-hmm. like once the room is illuminated, you can't unsee. You can't unsee it. You wow. know, does that was that my Angelo quote? You know, you don't know better. You can't do better until you know better. And once mm-hmm. you know better, do better. Mm-hmm. And it's like at that moment, I remember telling the guy that I that was selling for me, I was like, Yeah, I'm going back to Louisiana. He was like, Okay, cool. Just give me everything. And I was like, No, I flushed down the toilet because I don't want to see your life ruined as well. And he was so angry with me because, I mean, I understand his point of view. We mm-hmm. were doing this yesterday mm-hmm. and it was like thousands of dollars worth of drugs just like thrown out. And I remember we had a screaming match, you know, because I was like his boss at the time. And I'm like, you don't see the bigger picture. This is like, you know, what is it? Class two offense. Like you would go to jail for a long time if you had just one of these on you. I don't want to see you in jail. Like, you don't understand what I'm doing is for the best. And we didn't talk for a long time until he came to one of my dinners because I did pop-ups around the country and I stopped in Miami. Whoa. Yeah. And what was that like seeing him? It's actually a funny story because it was great. It was really good seeing him, but I used to give speeches before my dinners. Pretty much, and that's how I got really comfortable speaking in public. Mm. I needed time because all of my stuff, like, and this happens so most chefs when you're young, you do so many different techniques. It's about like ego, about showing that you can do all these things. So I had so many components on my first course that I needed to, I needed to like buy time so they can plate things up. So I would tell my whole life story and like this long mm-hmm. poetic thing. But I ended up, which we'll probably get to later, selling candy on the train in order to fund my first catering company. And this is after I sold drugs and everything. So I was talking about that and he didn't know that part of me. So Whoa. he laughed in the middle of my speech, like, ha, candy. That's not how I remember it. And because he thought I was joking about like me selling candy, like actual like ecstasy right. candy. Right. And I had to like pull him aside and be like, listen, man, like I don't do that anymore. I actually meant Skittles and M&Ms. I was selling it, saving up a dollar at a time. Wow. But it was cool though. It was cool seeing him. Wow. Yeah. What a moment. Yeah. Okay, listeners. So something I do want to touch on because you you said something illuminating about being in school and, you know, being in that ever growing, Mm -hmm. you know, behavioral feedback loop and and that when you really started making money, you didn't have to worry about where your next meal was coming from. Mm -hmm. And was there a lot of, like food insecurity in your childhood was how, how did yeah, that play absolutely. in? You know, I know you said there was always food happening in the house, but that didn't mean it was always accessible. Yeah, because catering is a seasonal gig, right? You know, mm-hmm. so like during the busy season, like in the summertime, right before the holidays, we'd be really busy, but there'd be times when my mom wouldn't have any gigs. So we didn't know when the next time we were going to really eat besides like tuna fish sandwiches. Mm-hmm. And I don't eat tuna fish to this day because of that food memory of mm. having to eat it so often. 
So yeah, it was, it was tough. And even when I got older, it wasn't like I would have a full meal all the time, you know? And that's one of the reasons why, you know, I think as we get more popular, we're always asked to like be a part of different charities or do fundraisers or things like that. And I'm, I really align with stuff that means something to me or like I can connect with because I'd rather like put a lot into one than spread between like 30 different fundraisers a year, you know? So there's this company or nonprofit called No Kid Hungry Mm -hmm. that makes sure or tries to end childhood hunger. But one of their main things is getting school lunches and breakfasts in school because those are those were some of my only meals growing up. Yeah. You know, and then the free lunches in the summer, like we would go there, we would go to the school in the summer and eat lunch. Mm-hmm. And that'd be the only way like we can all eat. So, so yeah, there was food insecurity growing up as well, you know, circumstantial. That's unfortunate. But that also made me really appreciate food and yeah. nurturing people and making sure I'm thinking about food waste mm-hmm. in my restaurants. And making sure to your point about nurturing that food isn't just a thing that tastes good, but is actually nourishing someone's body. Yeah. It keeps people alive. People think, forget about that. You know, it's funny when I talk to my sous chefs sometimes all the time when they're like really hard on themselves about a service or whatever. I'm like, listen, everyone who's coming here is not starving. Mm -hmm. So if they're waiting an extra 25 minutes for their food, they're eating here. They're, they're out eating because they're bored or they're, it's an experience. It's not, mm-hmm. they're not here to get their like dying meal. So like, we're not on an operating table. No one's dying. Mm-hmm. Like just chill. It's okay. We had a bad service. We'll get through it and we'll do it again tomorrow. And I think people forget that sometimes, mm-hmm. right? And then we get all caught up in this like fine dining world and, mm-hmm. you know, all about service and doing the perfect plate and doing this. Like, yeah, I'm all about that too. I've, I've been doing it for a long time. But there's also that other side of people actually eating just to survive, mm-hmm. you know. Well, in that perspective, I mean, you're you're never going to be the chef that's like some of the guys on TV who scream and throw things at people. I think I've graduated out of that. I think earlier in my career, I was definitely very, I mean, it's the same thing, product of your environment. You know, it's what I saw. Mm-hmm. So I thought that that was normal. I thought it was normal to to yell at people. And if things aren't going your way, you slam the table and. Mm. you know, fire somebody if they're 10 minutes late. That was just a normal thing for me coming up in like fine dining. So this is a big jump from like first job. Well, first job, first job really yeah. was at home mm-hmm. peeling shrimp. But then like your first you paid, know, job. paid job at McDonald's mm-hmm. to fine dining. Yeah. Obviously this odd college career in between <laughs> what happened how does this happen you move back to louisiana yeah you're working with your mom because she'd moved down there your senior year in high school yeah so i moved back there and i just started working in restaurants i worked i started as a dishwasher honestly because they told me i failed an aptitude test but on it was there were only people of color in the dish pit and they needed a dishwasher yeah in louisiana They wouldn't even let me see the test to see what I could like improve on. And it was math. I've always been extremely good at math. It doesn't really require much studying for basic mathematics, you know. So anyway, I started as a dishwasher there. Then I became a waiter. And then I became like a short order cook in a hotel and worked in a Mexican restaurant and a fish fry joint. And I just, you know, took it all in. 
And then I was, my mom actually moved to New Orleans and like left me in, in, I was in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, like not even in New Orleans. So then I was, I would commute to New Orleans because she actually became a chef of like the biggest catering company in New Orleans, Flirtily Catering, which was like really cool to see her get to that point when I was there and we were like side by side in the kitchen, you know, when I was a toddler. So, yeah, so I used to travel back and forth and they had a lot of temp people working for them as a catering company. And one guy was like, yeah, I I just do this one week and then I'm on the water for three weeks. And I was like, what do you mean you're on the water for three weeks? What does that mean? He's like, yeah, I work on a deep water rising oil spill, a huge oil spill that happened. They're paying like crazy amounts of money, like $1,900 a week to go out there and like cook for these like pirates that are like cleaning up this oil. I was like, sign me up. I haven't seen that kind of money in a long time. And it still aligns with what I'm trying to do. So mm-hmm. sign me up. So I signed up and they were trying to get anybody out there to cook in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico with like, it was, it was one of the craziest things I've ever seen. Like oil as far as the eye can see, just mm-hmm. like black everywhere. The scent could like pat, make you pass out if you were on the dock for long enough. And I went out there and I was cooking and the way that it was, it was like a head chef and a assistant chef. And you cooked for 40 people every single day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So after about three weeks, I became the head chef of the boat. And I was just cooking things my mom taught me how to cook. You know, I didn't really have that much experience, mm. um, like creating on my own. But I cooked stuff I grew up eating and people really liked it. So that was like the first time I started cooking for people. Like I was in charge of ordering. I was in charge of menu planning, things like that. And I got really into it. So then I saved up that money and moved back to New York after the oil was cleaned up. And I started working in restaurants. So I worked at Kraft, I worked at City Winery and really um, started getting into it more. Mm-hmm. But I felt like I, I was like, yearning for that like creating my own food Mm. like I did on the boat yeah so I figured I'd start a catering company and I remember coming home on the train one day and a kid walked on the train he was selling candy for a basketball team or whatever you know and I kind of laughed in the beginning and then I was like damn this kid just made like five dollars in two minutes and I did the math and he was making more money than me per hour you broke it down and if you did an eight hour shift a proper shift he was making double the amount of money that i was making whoa so i quit my job and i bought a a ton of candy and got on the subway and started selling to save up for catering company that's amazing i want to go back to the boat for a minute Mm -hmm. i'm i'm so interested in what that experience was like so you don't know this but the reason that I finally changed my mind about social media, because mm-hmm. like I was a kid working on a TV show and the attention of the world in the height of like gossip blogs felt so awful to me. I was mm-hmm. like, why would I put myself further out on the internet? And then Deepwater Horizon happened. Really? And I had been, I'd lived in New Orleans for a summer. I'd I'd spent a lot of time down there. Mm-hmm. It's just a place I love and the food I love and... I used to fly down there from North Carolina all the time on weekends. And um, the there's some folks at an organization called Global Green. Mm-hmm. And two of their biggest environmental attorneys live in New Orleans. And they called me and were like, it is so bad. It's so bad. Yeah, it was horrible. And everything on TV is a lie. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'm coming. 
and I that's when I started a Twitter account. And I basically started broadcasting like a citizen journalist from Gulf Shores. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I got threatened with arrest. I got threatened with strip searches, all this shit. But I was like, like getting verbally abused by these sheriffs in Louisiana. And I was like, I have two attorneys with me who will tell you every reason that everything that you're saying is a lie. Mm -hmm. And you can't tell me to turn my my camera off and you can't. But they would threaten people. And if you didn't have a lawyer with you, you wouldn't know. And the thing that I will never forget is realizing that all these young kids, mostly young black men, mm -hmm. who were cleaning up on the beach were being bussed in from these inner city communities, being paid minimum wage. And I got one kid to finally admit to me, because I was like, why are none of you wearing respirators? Like these are, this is raw carcinogenic material. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, we don't get paid if we get photographed in a respirator. Wow. And the next day I came back to the same place me? to try to interview these kids mm -hmm. and they had all been threatened and they were like, we're not allowed to talk to you. Yeah. Like they know you have a camera and they know you're on TV. And like, wow, it's still, I can believe that though. It's, like it's it still makes so me emotional. Yeah. And I was just like, Oh, we're going to do that thing where we put like the deadliest, worst and worst paying jobs on, on these, on these communities like, inner city still kids. Like, so they can have respiratory problems for the rest, for the of, their rest lives. of their lives. Yeah. But because this billion dollar oil company doesn't want the news to see people wearing respirators because mm -hmm. they want us to think that it's not that bad. Oh no, it was, it was, it was bad. I mean, there was, there was an alarm that would go off so we couldn't be on there or else we would like pass out or die. And what were you on? Like, can you paint a picture for we us? We were on a like, responder boat. So it's like, it's not a, a giant boat. I don't really know dimension, 60 foot boat or something like that. Okay. And so the way that they would clean it up was like the boat would emit like this semi ring out of the back of it and yeah. it would skim the top. But mm -hmm. the guys had to put this vac on the top of the waters and hold it down mm -hmm. to suck off the oil off the top of the boat. Mm -hmm. So that was it. I mean, the boat didn't really have much. We had our, our bunks. Okay. And then there was like an entertainment room, but it was just a room probably maybe twice the size of, the, of this room. So maybe like 400 square feet with a TV and a DVD player. So all these guys had to do was clean up oil, eat and sleep. That was literally it. And they were from like the backwood Louisiana. These are like, these are the most picture, like the most country looking white person you've ever seen. Like I was terrified when I got on there because I was like, I'm not going to have anything in common with these guys. And they're probably so racist. They're going to give me a hard time. And it was actually quite the opposite. They were like very, very cool. And mm -hmm. we ate the same food like because I grew up cooking Creole food with my mom. Oh, so wow. that's why we had this connection and the connection came through food. Yeah. And, you know, I definitely thought think that they would have gotten along with my friends back in the Bronx they were just so chill and down to earth and cool and um yeah it was a it was an interesting very interesting dynamic but not everybody was like that there were some people on there that were actually extremely racist like when I first got on the boat the head chef of the boat was like okay I just need to know do you know how to read because I have a lot of people coming on here not knowing how to read and I was like 
this conversation. I just walked. I was like, I, I have literally nothing to talk to you like wow. about and walked out. And I'm that, that's the guy that I replaced because I just was like, you know what? You cook your food. I cook my food. I'll do breakfast, lunch. You do dinner, breakfast. And we'll rotate that way. Mm-hmm. But I'm not, we're not going to be, we're not going to do this. He's like, oh, no, I can tell now that you're educated. And I was like, this, wow. please, okay. please stop talking to me right now. Yeah, just just stop. <laughs> just stop. Just don't. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Some I, of my first, it's like true, very blatant run-ins with racism was in the South. Because mm-hmm. I never really had to deal with that in New York. It was a very subtle in new york and like you stay in your place we stay in my place like that but you know in the south it was like totally different Hmm. and what's it like so you you're there how long were you on the boat did you say the whole summer that it was and and so what happens you go back to new york Mm -hmm. you you do the math (laughs) you're selling candy you're like i'm gonna save up all this money yeah and you start working in these restaurants and you're working in the real, you know, fine dining space. What is, what is that experience like for you? Is it, do you have the same moment you had in Louisiana where like they say you have to start as a dishwasher or is it different? I mean, it's different, but the same feelings were there, you know, and it was that, that aura of, I want to say start from the bottom because I had to start from the bottom. It was my first time in those restaurants. So I think right. everyone starts from the bottom, you know, when you're in those like hyper fine dining restaurants. But the same feelings that I had, you know, the same um, isolating feelings that I had, the same looks that I would get, I I would get in these restaurants. And mm-hmm. they're, you know, more strategic about it. There are HR departments and stuff like that. So you can't be as open, but there are other words that you can use that can be kind of masked. What does that mean? Words like lazy, ignorant, stupid, you know, things that can be Mm. masked from, you know, by the normalized bravado of being, you know, this this chef that can say and do as they please. So Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, they say these things to everyone. And it's like, no, they say they say it to me in a different way, you know, or they make different jokes that they don't say to everyone else. Right. You know, and I think that that's synonymous with most professions, you know, especially as you get higher up as a person of color, Mm -hmm. when there are less, less and less people that look like you. Mm -hmm. And you have to sometimes either laugh at jokes that you necessarily wouldn't to kind of continue to get ahead. And I think most marginalized people have to sometimes do that, unfortunately. And those are the things that kill you when you go home. Yeah. You know, that you wish you would have spoken up about. Justin Phillips wrote about this when he interviewed you and he talks about being the only black food writer at mm-hmm. a major newspaper. And he's he his words are so beautiful. I mean, the whole article it was is beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. That but was, he says that was crazy. He says, in the restaurant world, this is a byproduct of the way the fame ladder is structured. The higher the rung, the more rare melanin becomes, a fact that can be applied both to kitchen talent and media. That's just the way it is, or so I thought. And so he thought before he met you. And I think about, and not that it is in any way the same, like I was born in the body I was born in. I experience white privilege every day of my life. Mm-hmm. But I've been the one woman in the room mm-hmm. with 50 men. Yeah. 
And I know the way things are said and jokes are made and references are made to me and jokes are made about me. And then I'm told I'm sensitive if yep. I say that made me uncomfortable. And and I see how drastically it changes when there become three, four, five women in the room with those same 50 men. And so I guess I say that only to say I can only imagine what the experience is when you are the one person of color in a space. And to your point, people say like, oh, he's a dick to everybody. And it's like, yeah, but I'm the only person he calls ignorant mm -hmm. or lazy yeah. or whatever the adjective is that that, ha that has a stereotyped legacy in this country Ingrained that is in steeped it. in racism. Yeah. So you know what it means. Yeah. And when people tell you that your experience is not your experience, you're just like, okay, be in my body for the day. And yeah. like, tell me if when that guy like makes a joke, like, oh, it says, you know, in the script, I'm supposed to watch her walk away. Can't wait for that part. Like, yeah. hmm. Okay. Yeah, that was a that was a joke. That was a joke. It's yeah. a joke to you when it's a one-off experience. And mm -hmm. that can be perceived as a joke. Mm -hmm. But when there are institutionalized things that are continuing to happen, mm -hmm. whether it's a look from somebody on your way to work and then uh or someone not looking at you, looking at you in your eyes when you're talking, and then a joke from this person and the joke from that person, when it gets to that joke from from that person one it's not solicited i didn't ask for this but mm -hmm. also you have no idea what my day has been like up until this point yes you know and that's why i understand you when you're saying that because it sucks yeah it does yeah i'm sorry yeah. you've had to deal with that it's it's part of the game you know but it's just part of part of the change as well as talking about it right mm -hmm. so people are more aware mm -hmm. of what they're saying and, and how that small little quote unquote aside is, mm -hmm. can be viewed and how that can really affect somebody. Yeah. Cause I think me and you were similar in that fact that there are many people that would break under that, mm -hmm. you know, they're not going to take that little joke or they're going to not come back to work or they're going to leave the industry. And it's happened so times, so many times to people of color where they're like, you know, maybe this industry just isn't for me. And like, it is for you. It, it just has no place for that that's driving you away from it mm. you know yeah it's not you who needs to change it's the behavioral patterns of the industry yeah. that need to be excised exactly mm. so what hap how do you how do you manage in that environment when when there is that entire added layer of pressure of your intersectional experience what are your coping mechanisms how do you how do you stay in those kitchens uh, unfortunately, you have to put your head down and keep moving. Mm -hmm. You know, I think now we're in a we're in a greater space, and I think the more people that talk about it, the the, the easier it is to not have to just put your head down. You mm -hmm. can actually talk about it, and you can have some references and or point of reference. But at that point, it was just like you make your st you you stand your ground where you can, you know, and let it be known that you're uncomfortable when you can, mm -hmm. and hopefully people will get the hint. But in order to rise up through the hierarchy. Sometimes you just have to put your head down and, mm. and keep pushing and use that as fuel to keep going. And that's what I did. What felt like some of your biggest stepping stones? Like if you walk us through getting into the fine dining world to finally, you know, 
opening your first restaurant? Like what, what were the sort of pinnacles for you? I would say one of the biggest ones was leaving that world mm. and venturing out and finding my voice as a chef. Mm. So leaving the fine dining kitchens that I was in to then go and do pop-ups mm. around the world. All my mentors told me that I was crazy. You're on. The, you're already on this trajectory. Just put your head down. Continue yeah, you going. Were at, you were at per se. You yeah. were like doing the thing. <laughs> doing the. I was doing what everyone is supposed to be doing in the industry, right? So like. But you talked about how that felt so cold. Yeah. It just didn't feel right, you know. Mm. I th- we talked about this before. You know, we got on the mic about relationships and mm. growth, you know, as mm. an adult and how you have to go through certain things to find out what's right for you, mm-hmm. you know. And I think you learn from everything. You, know, you can learn from everything if you're looking at things the right way. Yeah. So, you know, it was it was something that there were definitely things that I wanted to take oh, take from that experience that were really amazing. I mean, it's an institution, so they're doing something right. Mm. But there were certain things that I did not want to do yeah. at the same time. Oh my God, I had this experience. I I got my dream job. I got like my dream show. Yeah. And I was the odd man out. And it, the day in and the day out, like the my kitchen was so cold. Yeah. And I just went, oh, like some of the people at the top, like my mentors, like my creator, mm-hmm. fucking legend, like yeah. coolest guy ever. I still think is the best guy ever. Like mm-hmm. I was like, if I could just work with you every day, I'd stay forever, you <laughs> yeah. know? But but the my particular, to use the metaphor, like my kitchen was so unwelcoming to mm-hmm. me. And that's a big deal when you go, oh, I, I did the big thing. I. I did the thing everyone's supposed to do yeah. and it's not for me. Yeah. I, I I have to learn what's great here and then be really real with myself about everything here that is not mm-hmm. for me. And then I'm gonna go create and something that's just all the good stuff yeah. somewhere else. But that's a scary it's hard leap. It's hard. It's like I jumping mean, off a building. It's hard. Especially I think the the good thing and the most important thing I think anyone who's listening should should do is know your worth. Mm. And I think if you're, even if you're in a position of your dream job and if you can look around <laughs> and know your worth, mm. then you need to be real with yourself and take what you can from this experience and either move on or just do better. Yeah. So. What did you take away from, from the fancy spots, like from the per se's? What Attention what did you to detail. Keep? Sense ah. of urgency. Hmm. Caring about every aspect that you do, you know, and working with integrity. Mm. You know, I think those things are, I mean, I can't really put a price on that. And Mm -hmm. I learned that there, you know, from, you know, I can't even work without like my side towel, kitchen towel being folded perfectly next to me on my station, you Mm. know, and I take pride in that. Because if you can take care of that towel that's used to like clean up, your your area around you, how are you going to treat that piece of steak? Or how are you going to treat that piece of broccoli or something before it goes to the plate? You mm-hmm. know, you're going to care about it all the way through. And that's the kind of things that I try to teach my cooks as well. Mm. That caring about that towel being folded is so important. Um, and it means so much. So there are definitely things that I take away from it, you know. But um, yeah, that, that's the hardest part because you have everyone telling you that you're crazy 
crazy for leaving. You're on a great trajectory. You know, you're doing well. Mm. Why would you start from scratch? You know? So that was like one of the biggest, that was, that was a huge point, huge turning point in my career. And it was a lot of learning as I went, you know, cooking for that amount. Like I was, so I did a, a tour around the world and I stopped in like every major city. Yeah, tell me, break down for us how this happens. So you leave your job and you say, I'm going to do mm pop-ups. And then how do you do that? So I worked with this company called Dinner Lab. It's not around anymore, but it was a a private supper club and they had outposts in every major city. Mm. So I did one in New York when I was still working at at the restaurants. And at the end of the meal, the guests have a scorecard and they're like brutally honest. They rate you from one to five on taste, creativity, temperature. What would they pay for this meal if they had to pay again? Mm. What comments would you write to the chef anonymously? Like it was, it was brutally honest. Yeah. <laughs> so I did the dinner and I got like a 4.8 out of five. And they were like, oh, this is awesome. We're doing a, a tour with 10 of the best chefs we've worked with. We're going to send you all around to all of our markets, 10 city tour. And the chef that gets the best score, because we can quantify this, will fund their first restaurant. And I was like, it was the hardest decision I ever had to make. I remember like thinking about this so hard, like asking every single person I knew, like, what should I do? And I had my mentors like, you are an idiot if you leave this restaurant. Like, do not do this to your career. And who's your mentor at the time? People that I did catering events for, you know, so other other sous chefs in the restaurant, you know, sous chefs in the past restaurants I've worked at, my mother, you know, people that I worked with back in the catering days. So okay. like there was a it was a it was a group of influential people in my life. And, you know, half of them were like, You're an idiot, and half of them were like go with your gut. You know, if it's, if your gut's telling you to leave here, maybe you should just leave here. So Mm. it was a really tough decision. And I decided to take that leap of faith and, um, you know, started, I remember my first city, I think was Miami. And it was so hard, like incredibly difficult getting to service, commanding a kitchen, like getting down to Miami and getting everybody on board so they can peel little tomatoes and, mm. you know, make marmalades out of red pepper skin. It was like, it, I had I had them doing very intense work for like a small payout for them. Mm-hmm. You know, I was only there for three days and we cooked for like 200 people. And that's where I saw my friend Gianni yeah. who worked for me. And I did that speech about selling candy yeah. and he laughed in the crowd. And <laughs> so you're like, I promise you. But, um, but yeah, so that's, that's how it all started. Wow. And from there I I did that. I ended up winning the competition. They went bankrupt the day that I won. And, um, (laughs) luckily I did well everywhere I went. So I had, you know, I cooked in 10 different cities for like 500 people everywhere I went. I had offers on the table from a lot of people that came to those dinners. I wanted to invest in my first restaurant and I chose DC. Why? Um, I really liked the space for one, because I toured the spaces of the people that were like interested. And my grandfather taught at Howard University. So I spent my summers in DC. My grandfather that lived in Nigeria, he was, he came to America in like, the 50s or something like that and started uh, an 
academics. And he taught at Tuskegee University. He taught at wow. Howard University. Yeah, he was very, um, he was a figure in the uh, civil rights movement. So wow. the reason why my name is Kwame is because Kwame Ture was his student. And that was just a, like, he mentored him. You know, Stokely Carmichael, who changed his name to Kwame Ture. He was a huge wow. civil rights activist who created, like, you know, Black Power. That's that's that guy. So there was Kwame Ture. Kwame Nkrumah was a good friend of him. And then Kwame Alatunje, which is Baba Alatunje, the famous drummer. His son was my dad's best friend. And he passed away when he was young. So my father was like, there's always been Kwames in my life. I want mm. to have one forever. So I'm going to name my son Kwame. And it's very controversial for a Nigerian person. It's a name from Ghana. Oh. For a Nigerian person to name anyone in their family, their daughter, their son, a Ghanaian name. And it also means something. It means born on Saturday. So my family, my Nigerian family was like, you're an idiot. Why would you name him this? Like, you're going to disgrace the family. And two, how are you going to name him born on Saturday? He's not even born yet. Like, how do you know when he's going to be born? But it just so happened that I was born on born Saturday. Born on a Saturday. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> like two minutes after the, the you know, the clock strike. 12 so wow it was it was meant to it be it was destined it was destiny i like that yeah wow so yeah so i stated uh, i chose dc i had some i had like a connection to it and um i like the space you know and i wanted to plant my flag there do you think that this is probably like a super woo-woo-y LA question. So forgive me, but it came to mind and now I have to ask. It's do not it. on my homework sheet. Do it. But do you think that there was some, when you talk about this, you know, this legacy of civil rights work and your experiences often being othered in kitchens, like was, do you think there was like some sort of subconscious like energy? Like DC is our political center yeah. and you, th this is a revolutionary act, you know, your career in food is, as you hear it, you know, being so meaningful to people who have not seen themselves represented in the space. And I'm always so struck by like how shocked people who look like me are that people of color could feel that way. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, hello, everyone, everywhere you go, like where we go, I guess I should point at myself, like looks like us historically. Mm -hmm. Yeah because of the way that representation has worked, because of the way that media has worked. like, And when you see, like, I know when I see any young woman take the helm of a company or start yeah, makes you so some happy. incredible, I'm just like, you're my you hero, you know? Yeah, you it's like it for so us. cool. Like, yeah. like the, that girl Jennifer who started away, like her company's worth a billion dollars mm -hmm. now. And I'm just like, you go girl. Like, I'm so <laughs> happy for her. And so I guess I'm just wondering, like, you're talking about taking away the good and also creating a completely new space. You're talking about how you're going to treat your kitchen staff differently and, and the kind of mentor you want to be to them. And do you think that there was, like, some of that spirit in that yeah. decision? I mean, I think, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say, you know, mm. thinking about it now. But it seems as if so. You know, kind of like, and I'll show them 
mentality, you know, with my own platform, mm. you know, because I've been told throughout my career that I wouldn't never become a chef or you'll never make it on TV. Mm. No one wants to see a black chef doing like anything refined. Someone said that to you? Yeah. Yeah. Producer said that to me. Yeah. See, as like, as the like... <laughs> <laughs> in, pop in, off? I'm like in the pit. I'm yeah. mad about it. That's Ooh, just tell me so, who it is. That's no, crazy. And, and the funny thing was, I wasn't even upset with them. Like it wasn't coming from a place of malintent. It was like I'm a producer. I've tried to do this, and I've been shut down so many times, and it hasn't been bought. And wow, it's un- it's unfortunate. But I'm telling you what's up. And if you want to do soul food or something like that. I'm pretty sure it would be a lot easier to do than this refined food that you were doing. And this is before I went to culinary school. This is like before anything. I was, you know, always interested in cooking and taking things to the next level. I didn't know how yet, but I was still trying to do it. And yeah, I was like, well, I'm not doing that. So I'll get there some way, but I'm going to get there by being me. And I'm not going to just like cook some smothered pork chops just to get on the Food Network or something like that, you know. Wow. Yeah. When was culinary school, by the way? Was that after you moved back to New York? Mm-hmm. It was after okay. New York. That's when I started doing catering. And yeah. then catering just, and culinary school. I just at went the same up to time. CIA one day and applied and I got in. And, That's so cool. Yeah. Uh, there's like, there's a couple of good schools here in LA. And I'm like, cooking schools? I just kind of want to go. <laughs> it's there, fun. It yeah. is fun. I like culinary school. Yeah. I had a blast. That's great. Yeah, and I met a lot of great people. So let's tell me, because you, well, the restaurant we're speaking of in D.C. was your first restaurant. You opened Shaw. Yeah, Shaw Bijou. Shaw Bijou. hmm And is that before Top Chef? Is it after Top so Chef? So it's after the, Top Chef. After so Top Chef. So in the middle okay. of it being built, since restaurants always have delays, that went on Top Chef. Because we had all this time for like permits to come to fruition. And we turned an old Italianate row house into a commercial building, which is- my God, building a commercial A residential into commercial. The permitting alone that you have to go through, you have to change like pipes from two inches to four inches in order to supply enough water for like the fire suppression system to go off. You know, like it's like a nightmare. So it took a lot longer than we thought. Wow. So yeah, so Top Chef called in the middle of it and I went on that and I came back and How opened was the that restaurant. experience? It was fun. Yeah. I had I had a good time. I like competing, you season know. Season 13? Season 13. Yeah. You know, I yeah, I was really young, so like I I I didn't really have anything to lose. I was just starting my career. Mm. So for me it was like I was just being unapologetically me, you know, which also got me kicked off the show. <laughs> but <laughs> But it was fun. I made it far. You know, yeah. I made a lot of lifelong friends on there. And what kind of food were you cooking? I was cooking like refined food, mm-hmm. like just modern American food with global influence, you know. And food were you that bringing I was... in some of your your kind of food, your mom's kind of food into it? Or did you really just have to kind of stick to the everything script? I cooked. But I'm like, you've I cooked think... one million meals in your life. Tell me <laughs> yeah. about number 264. Episode 1303. I don't know. I, I cooked like, I think I brought a, a little bit, but not really. I had just come off a long trip. I was in Asia for a month. 
So I brought a lot of things from there that were like really inspiring me at the time. Were you learning new food techniques in Asia? Yeah, I was in India. I was in Thailand. I was in Vietnam and Hong Kong. Wow. So I picked up a lot of things there. And my friends were chefs everywhere I went over there. So like they were showing me like fine dining restaurants, street food, how to make stuff at home. Oh my like, God, this is my dream trip. It was, it was a lot of fun. Don't worry. When we go to Africa, okay. you'll learn a lot of Great. stuff. I'm in. But, I'm um, so in. Yeah. So I brought a lot of that because that's what I was like really into. And also I just come off like a huge fine dining kick and I was about to open up a fine dining restaurant. So I wanted to showcase all of those things so it would like translate right. into people yeah. paying customers coming to me, you know? Yeah. So, and so you could very clearly show you that skill set. Yeah. Just a vision, you know? clearly show what I was trying to that's you know, so cool. trying to be at the time. So So, so yeah. what was what was the experience once the nightmare of permitting and oh my God, I feel you. I like <laughs> I I naively took on a construction project and was like, this is some bullshit. Oh it sucks. What is so how, much red tape. It's, it sucks. It's the I, worst. I just like I I had a moment where I was like, this could be a show, but it wouldn't be any fun to watch. But it's so dramatic. Yeah. Um it's not what? fun. Once that all got done, though, once the drama's once done, it got done, it was pretty amazing. You know, we built this restaurant, so it was it was all of my friends from culinary school. Really, like we came back together after Whoa. working in the industry, and you know, my best friend was the general manager. I made him partner in the restaurant, and we were like doing everything, putting tiles up, painting the walls, putting drywall up, like, wow. and you know, I formulated a really cool team, which I felt was probably the most diverse team in the fine dining, you know, um, spectrum at the time. And, yeah. you know, unfortunately it didn't last long, but, um, three months at the restaurant, three months. Right? Yeah. And what do you think now in hindsight, what do you think are the contributing factors there? Like, what did you, my investor ran out of capital. I mean, uh, no, no restaurant, no business in general can get its legs in three months to be a profitable or be running efficiently. It's mm -hmm. like, I don't care what you're doing. Three right. months is not enough time, you know? So yeah, I mean, picking better partners, not saying yes. Mm -hmm. I was like very, I was, I was coming from making $10 an hour to making like a salary and being a part owner in a restaurant. I was yeah. yesing it up, you know? Right. But I wasn't, paying attention to certain things that I should have been like asking, like how much money do we actually have? You know, right. what money do we have allocated to, you know, FF and E, which is like, like furniture and like equipment and things like that. You know, I, I didn't know these terms. I didn't know, you know, they had $200,000 allocated to opening this restaurant and it's, it turned into a $2 million project. I'm because like, well, what? we had to dig, like we had to break into the sidewalk to change the pipes. Yeah. Also <laughs> you know? like it costs hundreds of thousands of dollars to build just the commercial the, kitchen. Yeah. The kitchen alone was $200,000. The building. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, money was quote unquote, not an option. And to me at that time, like, coming okay. from $10 an hour, I'm like $200,000 is, that's so much money, you know? And oh no, it, it fell through our hands like sand to the point where they closed the restaurant on, I found out the restaurant closed a day after it closed essentially. And it was, oh it was on our, on one of the days that the restaurant wasn't open. I, you know, the owner pulled me in and was like, Hey, we're closing this restaurant. And I'm like, all right, 
is there anything I can do? Like, I'll put in my own savings for this. And he's like, no, I'm done. I was like, all right, I guess, I guess so. I have no say in this. When are we closing? He's like, yesterday. Oh my God. So I didn't, we didn't, we didn't get a last service. We, I didn't no. get to like, nobody got to prepare for the closing, you know? And it's, God. so for me, it's like, you knew you were closing before that day. <laughs> you could have let people know so they can, you know, like, people moved across the country to like work at this restaurant. Yeah. You know, so it would have been nice to give people a heads up. And um, for me, you know, a lot of people ask me this, especially like, you know, local DC, because they were like really not nice to me, like the local press in DC Why? at the time. I don't know. I feel like it was a personal vendetta to see me fail, you know, before even anything happened internally. It was like this external hate. And I, will, I, I hope it had nothing to do with the color of my skin. But I think if anyone had the pedigree that I had, you know, that didn't look like me, that was coming in and charging what they were charging, it would be applauded. Like, thank you for coming to D.C., you know, and it wasn't that way for me. Yeah, instead of going to Chicago or New York. Yeah, exactly. Why, why do you... what? There was a big thing about pricing. Yeah. Which is weird to me because it's like, well, okay, but fine dining. It's a fine dining dining restaurant. You don't have to come and eat here if you don't want to. Right. So it's funny. So what what I'm getting to is people ask like, so what did you learn in this experience that you had? What what are you not going to do again? I'm like, choose different. I opened opened Kith and Kin months after Mm. this restaurant failed, you know, Mm. and I was successful with this restaurant and, and it wasn't because I did anything extremely different in the first three months. Like, no, it still took time to get, we're still trying to figure out food costs. I mean, it's, and then we're two years into it, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a big restaurant, but I just had people that didn't give up on me, you know, and give up on the team or the vision, not just me. Cause it, that closure affected more than just me. Yeah, It affected everyone that worked there, you know, and it's not just about me. It's about a team and you can't give up on that so quickly. I think something that's missing in public perception of any kind of creative industry, which I work in, which you work in, like food is ultimately creative mm-hmm. and it and it is ultimately it's like building a marriage or building a house. Like it it takes time to learn exactly how to move with people, communicate with people, and there's so many people who are a part of it Mm -hmm. and it requires everybody being supported and everybody being creative and everybody to your point not giving up yeah and it's like the the idea you know of your first restaurant the 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 expectation of the immediate turnover (laughs) like that isn't how it works you don't figure out who you want to be married to after three dates no there there it requires this like exploration and investment Mm -hmm. and and so when I talk about things I want to be involved in, I always try to phrase it that way to people. I'm like, who wants to build a family business with me? Because mm-hmm. whether it's a business or a show or a relationship, like I'm I'm now officially in the business of a family business. Yeah. And if you don't want to build that, I applaud whatever you're doing over there from over here. But this isn't this isn't going to work. But it's cool. Like yeah. you just go over there and you do and your you thing. Do your thing. Yeah. You want to like start a company and flip it in a year? Like, cool. Mm-hmm. That's just not for me. Yeah. And, and it's I, not going to work that way. Uh-uh. And I had to learn that from learning how to say no also. Because mm-hmm. I used to. And I think for anybody who like 
gets the privilege of being creative. When you get the opportunity to be creative, you're to like, paid, yes. To get paid for well, it. Of course. <laughs> yeah. I would love to do that. Yeah, and then sure. you learn eventually that there's a lot you shouldn't say yes to. Yeah. And not all dollars are created equal. So you have this experience and that's obviously not great. But within six months, you said, you'd opened Kith and Kin. What's the... You walk away from something that you loved and it doesn't work and it's devastating. <laughs> Devast heartbreaking. It's the most crushing thing in the world. I think my career is over. Yeah. I'm so young and I'm so like publicly shamed Ugh. for closing a business, which is preposterous to me. It's like I, I'm getting shunned for creating jobs for people. I, I don't know. I don't understand. I don't understand. <laughs> you know? But then you have to reassess. Mm-hmm. And... Once once it's all been crushed down, how do you rebuild? And how do you rebuild with a new vision? Where does that come from? Well, I think having people around you, sometimes that believe in you more than you believe in yourself mm-hmm. really helps. Mm-hmm. You like having that core group of friends or your support system. That, that helped me because I was in a really dark place. I was very depressed afterwards. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know how to get back up. And I think... It was like the, the next day I called everybody, all the management, and was like, all right, if we got another $2 million to do this tomorrow, what would we do differently? And we wrote mm-hmm. down the things we did wrong, despite the money issues, things we did wrong, things we did right, and how we could do that all over again. Mm-hmm. So I was like, all right, well, I need, to, I need to do something with my life. I don't want to be in the public eye right now. I just want to cook and prove that I can cook. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to open up a restaurant and not put my – and I haven't really told anybody about this. Like, I'm not going to put my name on it. I'm going to stay in the kitchen. I'm going to, you're the owner. You go out there. And I opened an Ethiopian restaurant. Whoa. And my friend who has like an Ethiopian, like food packaging company, we're really great friends. I was like, you just be the face. I'm going to just create the food. I'm going to be in the kitchen. I'll package everything. I created the processes. I was like, we'll sous vide these things. Like it was a fast casual I was like, well, Cryovac in these little packages. All you have to do is drop it in the water, sous vide it, take it out, put it in the steam kettle, and you'll be able to just put the fruit out. And we opened that up, and it was successful. And it was just good to cook again mm-hmm. and not have to worry about doing interviews and answering questions about why I'm inspired to do this or like having to sell like i was just cooking food and it was people were writing articles about it and it was pretty hilarious for me on the inside (laughs) the same people that were like shitting on me like months ago weeks ago were now writing these awesome articles about my food Mm. and it was a good feeling for me you know um it kind of got me back in that headspace that like no you do know what you're doing like continue do not stop Mm -hmm. because of somebody Mm-hmm. continue going. So mm-hmm. then I got reached out to by the Intercontinental Hotel Group to put a concept in one of their hotels. And I toured the space, fell in love with the location. It was right on the water. I did some mm-hmm. research. I found out that, you know, the area that I was that was at was a large meeting ground for uh, Native Americans and enslaved Africans in Washington, D.C. And they would trade ideas and, you know, goods. And I I thought that that was really cool and impactful. And I did some more digging and I found a little bit later that was like one of the largest slave outbreaks where they hijacked the ship 
and got on the ship and went down the, the Potomac, you know, and that was like really cool to me. And I did it, some more research and there was like the story of the Georgetown slaves that they sold in order to save the school because slavery wasn't as popular anymore, but they kind of like broke up a large community of people that have been together for a long time. And, you know, one of the descendants was like a very close family friend that I I call her aunt, Aunt Maxime. Mm. And it was like, damn, this is so, this hits so close to home that I need to honor like my heritage if I'm going to do this. Mm. Because the first thing I was thinking was, I'm back, baby. Here we go. Mm. Fine dining again. I'm going to show them that I can do this, you know? And then when I did all that research, I was like, I need to do something that that means a little bit more, mm. you know? And that's more a representation of a people that don't really have a voice in this industry right now, mm. coupled with my, you know, my knowledge right now and the way that I look at food. And that's one of the ways Kith and Kin was born. Mm. Another way was... I did a food salon for Questlove and he had the impossible meat. And he was like, you know, I I want everybody to use the impossible burger to create a dish. And I got it. And I was like, man, what am I going to do with this? Like, I tasted it. I was like, all right, I can turn this into Jamaican beef patties because it's the same texture a little bit. And I'll stuff it in there and nobody will know. And I'll put a lot of flavor and I'll make this Calypso sauce. And I did it like on a whim. And I remember like my close friend and my fiance was there. And they were like, why don't you eat, cook like this all the time? Like you just did this without even like thinking about it. I was like, yeah, you know, I love like African and Caribbean food. They're like, yeah, we know. Like, why don't you like cook like this more? And I just looked at them. I was like, you know, that's funny. My friends and family are telling me this. And I just went to Google and typed in friends and family and Kith and Kin popped up, which oh. is like middle English for friends and family. And I was like, that's a dope name. I'm going to use that. And then that's yeah. how it was really really born. So that's beautiful. Yeah. It was really cool. You know, and I think what's really cool about my restaurant now is I don't advertise for black chefs, black cooks, black servers or anything, but they're gravitated towards the restaurant for some reason. And maybe because Mm -hmm. of the type of food we're cooking or there's someone at the helm that looks like them, that they know that it's possible, you know? Well, the option of Experiencing familiarity in a space in which you have always historically been made to feel unfamiliar mm-hmm. must again feel like a respite. Yeah. And like you've created a space that magnetizes people where they get to feel safe. And it is, unlike childhood, it is a safe, loving, nurturing space. Mm-hmm. And like talk about a full circle. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty cool. What an amazing thing. <laughs> and yeah, isn't it interesting that sometimes when we're fighting to prove how good we are at something, all we have to do is go back to our roots. Exactly. And bam, we're the best exactly. we've ever been. Exactly. Oh and it's my a God. lot easier. It's you're not fight, you're not swimming against the, the you know, the current or the tide. Yeah. It's like you're kind of going with it and like embracing all that you've you've already experienced and just learning how to channel that. Yeah. And you did it. And on May 6th, <laughs> you were named the Rising Star Chef of the Year by the James Beard Foundation. Yes. That's yes. my Oprah moment where I'm like, you got an award. <laughs> and, and it's amazing as we talk about history, 
that this is only the second time in the James Beard Awards history, it's 28 years that these awards have been happening, that a black man has been the recipient. Yeah. Marcus Samuelson. Yeah. And you. Yeah. Like, whoa. It's wild. It's That's wild. wild. It's wild. It's, it's, it's crazy. It's a lot of responsibility, mm-hmm. too. I think I'm still learning because, like, right after it happened, I was, like, freaking out. You know, I called Chef Marcus, like, what do I do? I called, you know, David Chang, like, I'm freaking out, man. Like, I, I need help. I need guidance. And they're like, just keep doing what you're doing. Mm. Like, it, it's all right, you know. And I, I look at that now and I look at the platform that I have now. And there's, like, two things I really want to do. I want to be happy and I want to inspire people, mm. you know? And it's like, I don't need to follow anyone else's path. I don't need to do exactly what Marcus did or what David Chang did or what any of the other, you know, 28 of us, which is pretty cool to say, have, you know, have done. Mm-hmm. I need to do what I've been doing and just stay in my lane, um, whatever lane that is. Even if I have to create my own lane, I have to do that. But I, I have to be happy, mm. you know, and... That's that's kind of like what I've taken away from this whole experience. Mm. I'm so happy for you. I like <laughs> honestly feel like I could cry. It's beautiful. Thank you. And thank you so much for sharing. Of course. You you write in the book about how you've spent your life modulating which Kwame to show the world. Mm-hmm. And have you at this point on through I should say all the ups and downs and this whole experience and being in this place where like you get to sit and kind of look at what you've built and what you've done and who you've chosen to be in the world have you figured out who Kwame alone when nobody else is watching is I think I'm still figuring that out I think most of us are figuring that out right we have to put on a face for a lot of people all day long Mm -hmm. especially people that are in the public eye Mm -hmm. And I think it'll it'll come with time. But I think who you are alone changes. Hmm. You know, sometimes life will will shift the way that you look at the world, you know, and yeah. inherently the way that you look at yourself. Yeah. So right now I'm very content and happy and uh I understand my position and what my role is in this industry, being a chef of color that has done things that not many others have achieved, but I just need to continue going, continue doing what I've been doing. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. There's one anecdote that (laughs) I just want to reference because you talk about growing up cooking with your mom Mm -hmm. and I just think it's like the most beautiful thing. And even referencing the, the sort of food tour you went on before you did the cooking show and um, spending time in India. And you're actually the second guest who's come on here and talked about curry goat. And I'm like, I just want to eat it so bad. (laughs) Um, But I I think about like the way that the world really informs our favorite food. And and you write in the book about this time when your mom smelled curry in the apartment. And so you Mm -hmm. went searching for it. And and when the woman like opened her door, she thought you were going to criticize her, but your mom asked to try her curry and mm-hmm. and you write in the book that at that the woman's entire demeanor changed her face crinkled into a smile and she stepped back opening the door and gesturing for us to enter and i would imagine that in hindsight it's such an illuminating moment that food more than anything 
can break barriers and break culture and mm-hmm. break borders and bring people together. And I wonder how you feel about that now. Um, well, yeah, that's like the basis of kith and kin. Look, we have a large clientele that's African and Caribbean that come. And it is so rewarding for me to walk through that dining room and see people finally being able to celebrate a special occasion while still celebrating their culture, mm. which doesn't really happen for, you know, African and Caribbean descendant people, right? But also there are people that look nothing like them side by side eating food and they're teaching them how to eat with their hand or explaining this dish and learning about a culture that they would have never learned about. And Mm. I think that's the beauty of food. You know, it brings people together and you're able to learn about someone's culture while nourishing your body. And there's not many other ways that you can do that Mm -hmm. besides, I guess, medicine, but like something that people actually enjoy. It's, I think it's, it's really, really, really beautiful. And it brings people together, you know, it brings the world together. Mm-hmm. You know, we need to talk about food more. Yeah. I think it's the best. <laughs> it's like honestly the best. Your food is also the best. Okay. My last question that mm-hmm. I asked to everyone. So the title of the podcast is called Work in Progress because mm-hmm. I am the luckiest person in the world that I have a community of incredible humans who've yeah. achieved incredible things that I can ask about how they did that. And I think especially to your point in this world of, you know, media, the internet, it's really easy for a lot of people to look at somebody like you and go, God, that guy, and he won an award and he has a restaurant and he's got it all figured out, like, amazing. But anybody who's ever been in the public <laughs> eye knows that we're like, I don't know what I'm doing either. Yeah. Um, so I'm so curious, what in your life right now in this moment feels like a work in progress to you? Uh, figuring out how to successfully open more restaurants Mm. without, um, well, with the current bandwidth that I have, Mm. you know, you only have so many people on your team that you can trust to, to represent you, you know, and when you're opening a restaurant and you have already one, you can't be at two places at once. So for me, I really want to start a restaurant group and it's like, I'm trying to figure out how to crack the code. You know, and it, it just takes time. I've talked to my mentors and they're like, it's a, I started a restaurant group by mistake. I opened one restaurant, then I had to open another restaurant, then that restaurant was failing. So I opened another one to offset it, but then that one succeeded. And it's like, everyone has their own story of how to do it. Yeah. And I just need to figure out how to take that next step. So mm-hmm. that's that's really the thing I'm trying to figure out the most. Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> Please open a restaurant in LA. I want to so bad. Okay. Let's talk about that. Yes. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. We'll make it happen. All right. I need more rice. More rice and peas. Yes, please. And the curry goat. Bring that Bring that to LA. Please. Yeah. Okay. It's happening. All right. We just spoke it. Look at that. It's happening. It's happening. <laughs> Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. This was, this was a lot of fun. Yeah. And, and very therapeutic. Hey, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> <laughs> very cathartic. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnick. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. Our editor is Josh Windish. 
And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Brilliant Anatomy.